The following is a presentation made at the 2022 Transcending the Israel Lobby at Home and Abroad Conference held on March 4 at the National Press Club. All right, and we're going to welcome our final speaker here on the stage to close us out today, and that will be yes, Roger Waters, as you know, a musician. He has obviously been instrumental uh, in gaining more attention for this issue and numerous other issues, and we are so delighted uh, to have you here today. Thank you so much. Wow, you're still here. I love that. Well, obviously you would be because everything has been extremely interesting. And, ah, my own nameplate. I don't know where to start, really. Yesterday at the gala dinner here, um, I told a short story about a correspondence that I had with um, an American musician. Oh, sorry, no, I know where to start. And I haven't got my list of stuff, but on on the program it says that I'm get. What does it say on the program? Come on, somebody help me out. I'm going to talk about the something effect of activism on. What is it? Well, speaking from personal experience, <clears throat> hang on, I need a bloody microscope to see what the positive effect is being. Because by and large, they completely ignore me, right? My colleagues in the music industry. Um, and I've got one or two other short anecdotes here, which I'll share with you because they're somewhat lighthearted in comparison with all, all the very important uh, subjects that have been touched on by the other speakers here today. But they nevertheless um, shed some light on, on my relationship with this problem. Um, which only goes back to um, 2006 when I was invited to uh, do a gig in uh, Hyakon Stadium in Tel Aviv. And, and I won't go through the whole story because sh- most of you will have heard it before, but suffice it to say I cancelled the gig and moved it somewhere else and we did, but still in, in Israel. And then I revisited in 2007 uh, at, at the... Um, and was looked after by Andrea Pacheo, um, Allegra Pacheo, excuse me, who was working for UNRWA at the time and drove all over the occupied territories, with the uh, except Gaza, where I couldn't go to, but most of the rest of it, and saw what was happening. And uh, this has been ringing in my ears, listening to all the speakers who've stood up here today and also last night saying, until you see it with your own eyes, you cannot believe how appalling it is. I can feel my heart beginning to beat in my chest, even at the memory from the 15 years ago or however long it was ago of the primal disdain in the eyes of those 18-year-old Israeli border guards. And that's for somebody who's flashing a, you know, one of these, a British passport at them, a visitor to the country. And so, so what it must be like for the occupied people, I have no, uh, no idea at all. Right, I'm going to um, refer now to these notes. And I'm going to start on what I think is a very um, positive note. This is a little something that I wrote uh, on Christmas 2017. And it's a letter uh, that I wrote to 
this is this is one positive thing about a, a fellow artist. She's a New Zealander. She's a young lady. She's called Lord. She makes pop records. And thank you. So I wrote a letter to her and to Ahed Tamimi, who we all know about, obviously, uh, because we've watched her grow up. You know, we've seen her since she was about five years old, shaking her fist and hanging on to the knee of some Israeli soldier and screaming at him. And she became a great heroine of all of us, I know, at that time. And we've slowly watched her, her grow up into a young woman, presumably in prison probably for the rest of her life. You know what they're like. Anyway, dear Lord and Ahetamimi. Oh, by the way, um, last night, somebody, who was it? Matthew Ho is his name. He's standing for Congress for the Green Party in North Carolina. He sent me a movie that he and our great friend Ray McGovern, another ex-CIA analyst, had made recently... Um, in the Tamimi's home village, where they film themselves being set upon by extremely violent settlers. And it's well worth going on to the, going on to YouTube and finding it. You'll find it, I think, under Matthew Ho. So, if, if you're watching this, Ray, love you, brother. See you soon. Right. Christmas 2017 will be remembered for two young women. You, Lord, will be remembered for your measured, and principled stand in support of Palestinian rights. Thank you for shining your light into a dark place. And for 16-year-old Ahed Tamimi, she will be remembered because she slapped a heavily armed soldier, one of the army that has brutally occupied her people's land for the last 70 years. The soldier was lounging against the wall in her family's yard, two days after one of his units had shot her unarmed younger brother in the head with a rubber-coated bullet. Her brother is in a medically-induced coma. She is in prison. I write to you both with great admiration, love and respect, Roger Woods. So that was one. Well, thank you. Now it gets a bit grimy, but, you know, don't worry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I pull these at random out. I've got a pile of these about that thick at home because over the years I have written hundreds of letters to musicians imploring them uh, not to cross the picket line, not to go and do gigs for Shooky Wise in, in uh, Tel Aviv or anywhere else. And at, and at the festivals that happen every summer and so on and so forth. And uh, Lord was one of the few precious close to my heart um, exceptions to the general rule that they go and it goes into the waste paper basket. Anyway, here we go. This piece of paper is called My Mum and Doing the Right Thing. And it must have been whenever they had Eurovision there because it's a bit about that. All right, here we go. Madonna having accepted Eurovision's invitation to perform in Tel Aviv at the Eurovision Song Contest finals in May raises yet again fundamentally important ethical and political questions for each and every one of us to contemplate. 
In Paris in 1948, the then fledgling United Nations drafted and subsequently adopted a universal declaration of human rights, which enshrined the in, in international law that all our brothers and sisters all over the world, blah, blah, blah. So the question each one of us should ask ourselves is this. Do I agree with the United Nations Declaration? If your answer to this question is yes, then a second question arises. Am I prepared to stand behind my support for human rights and act upon it? Will I help my brothers and sisters in their struggle for human rights? Or will I cross over and walk by on the other side? In the context of the current conversation about the location of the Eurovision finals and the participation of Madonna and the other performers, the brothers and sisters in question are the people of Palestine who live under a deeply repressive apartheid regime, apartheid regime of occupation and enjoy neither the right to life nor the right to self-determination. And then I go on to talk a bit about BDS. Back in 2004, Palestinian civil society, maybe it was 2005, appealed to the rest of the world for help and, among other things, established a cultural picket line asking artists to refrain from blah, blah, blah. Since that time, blah, 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 responded to the call and done what I can to persuade others to do the same. Some of my fellow musicians have recently performed in Israel and they say they are doing it to build bridges and further the cause of peace. They're also getting a few quid. I don't mind telling you. I didn't write that down, but the, the Israelis do pay itinerant musicians inordinately well. Uh, so uh, further the cause of peace, full stop. Bullshit. To perform in Israel is a lucrative gig, but to do so serves to normalize the occupation, the apartheid, the ethnic cleansing, the incarceration of children, the routine slaughter of unarmed protesters, etc., etc., all that bad stuff. By the way, because I support human rights and criticize the Israeli government for its violations, I am routinely accused of being anti-Semitic. That accusation is, of course, a smokescreen intended to divert attention and to discredit by the smear of being labelled anti-Semitic anyone who shines a light on Israel's crimes against humanity. I should point out that I support the fight for human rights for all oppressed peoples everywhere. The religion of the oppressor is neither here nor there. If I support the Rohingyans and deplore the Myanmar persecution of them, it doesn't make me anti-Buddhist. It is my belief that the future of Homo sapiens, the future of our human race, will largely depend upon our ability to develop our capacity to empathize with others and not our capacity to oppress and control them. We cannot afford to regress to the dark ages when, we, when might meant right. We are better than that, aren't we? I suppose I'm calling on everyone involved in what I see as Eurovision's betrayal of our joint humanity to focus on the capacity to empathize with their Palestinian brothers and sisters, to try to put themselves in that place. Try to imagine 70 years, generation after generation, waking every morning, day by day, hour by hour, to the systematic creeping plunder of your people's life. Slowly, slowly, every town, 
Every village, every home, every olive tree, every stone, every flower, every smile, every weary mile, every daughter, every son, every memory handed down, every flinch year by year, every tremble, every tear, every hand, every furrowed brow, slowly, slowly trodden down. And they, who have held their heads high and resisted, with great courage, fortitude and grace, have asked us, the bleeding hearts and artists, for our help. We, all of us, have, in my view, an absolute moral and human obligation as fellow human beings to answer their call. My mum, in maternal attempts to provide guidance to me in my youth, used to say, Roger, in any given situation, there's nearly... She doesn't really speak like that, but I thought it'd be more dramatic. (laughs) Sorry. There's nearly always a right thing to do. Just think about it carefully, whatever it may be. By all means, consider all points of view. Then decide for yourself what the right thing to do is, and then just do it. That was my mum. So there we are. It it goes on. I'm just beginning to realise that this isn't actually a letter to anybody. It's just me writing something down. But I'll finish this bit, and then we'll get on to something more personal. I would urge all the young contestants... In fact, oh, I know, this has caused a terrible furore out there in, um, you know, um, out there in protesting land. In fact, all young people, in fact, all people, young and old alike, so that includes Madonna. Oh, Christ, they went absolutely eight shit, accused me of being ageist, calling Madonna old. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's been translated. uh, I would encourage them to read the Universal Declaration. Uh, It's been translated into 500 languages, so anyone can appraise themselves of its 30 articles. If we all are to abide, if we were all to abide by those articles, we might yet save our beautiful planet home from its imminent destruction. Right. Sorry, I need water. Dear Madonna. Dear Madonna. So, 16th of May, 2019. So, you're going through with it. Well, there is that new album to sell. I wish I could say I was surprised, but sadly, I'm not. This was predictable. Seen from the outside... And in my admittedly jaundiced view, your whole career has been the sad victory of style over content. I'm sorry. You know, if you're of a sensitive nature, just go and have a drink in the bar or something and come back in a minute. Because this is ugly. All right, here we go. On your decision to sing at Eurovision, you say... I'll never stop playing music to suit someone's political agenda. Now, that's open to all sorts of different interpretations. I think what she meant was 
that she wouldn't stop playing music to suit my political agenda. I, but anyway, so I pretended I didn't understand. I can't argue with that statement. Clearly, singing for your supper in Tel Aviv next week suits the racist apartheid Israeli government's agenda down to the last raised olive tree. However, I can't let, quote, I will always speak out against violation of human rights wherever in the world they may be. Go by. She said that. She said that. Uh, what did I reply? Wow, girl, you have some big cojones. That's how I reply. <clears throat> Someone who betrays a friend for money is usually called a Judas. The act of cheating on the golf course is known either as a Clinton or a Trump. It's true. I mean, I play golf. I know this to be an absolute true fact. Someone who pretends to support an action but does the exact opposite is usually called a hypocrite. To immortalize this year's Eurovision, I propose we drop the word hypocrite from the lexicon and henceforth anyone who is proverbially hypocritical should be known as a Madonna. And I wrote in brackets after that, with apologies to the Holy Mother. <laughs> and I finished my letter, very hard to squeeze out any love here, but love are. So, right. Okay. I know, I know, I don't want to go on and on and on. I know you all want to hear my letter to Shakira, but it's a bit long. And, and so I won't, but this is in a similar vein. She did the same thing, except she did stand up next to Netanyahu and sing the national anthem or something. Anyway, I'll put that to one side. Now then, this is coming near the end of my, of my prepared remarks. You'll be glad to hear. Now then. Nick Cave. Somebody mentioned him. Who mentioned Nick Cave? Somebody stood up here. and Maybe most of you don't know who he, Nick Cave is. He's a rather louche Australian singer-songwriter, uh, uh, much beloved of teenage girls all over the world. And, uh, and also um, he has lots of um, uh, strongly held opinions about all sorts of things. Anyway, I haven't got, I, I mentioned a press conference he did. He also did a long, a long article in the Guardian newspaper that when my, when I was a little boy, it used to be a proper newspaper. It, it, it was a little bit left of center, but it was sensible and said things unlike the crap that it prints all the time, uh, these days. Not least George Monbiot's disgusting article today's. Anyway, I won't talk about George Monbiot. Uh, I have breath for other matters. So Nick Cave did a press conference. And, it, and, and it basically what Nick Cave did was he accused me and a friend of mine in England, another musician called Brian Eno, of being cowardly and shameful because we support the BDS movement. And I thought to myself, fuck me. Uh, that is really... Anyway, so... No wonder he avoided a conversation with anyone from BDS, which he did, before going ahead with his shows in Tel Aviv, which he did. 
So I, I read his press conference statements with a mixture of sorrow, rage, and disbelief. Okay, first, disbelief. Nick thinks this is about censorship of his mood. That's what he accused me of. He said I was trying to censor his music. What? Nick, with all due respect, your music is irrelevant to this issue. So is mine. So is Brian Eno's. So is Beethoven's. This isn't about music. It's about human rights. After disbelief, rage. This is about children, like the young boys blown to bits while playing soccer on the beach in Gaza, boys murdered by Israel, boys symbolic of the thousands and thousands of children sacrificed in Israel's mowing of the lawn, Israel's terminology, not mine. We, hundreds of thousands of us, supporters of BDS, and human rights throughout history all over the world joined together in memory of Sharpville and Wounded Knee and Radice and Budapest and Ferguson and Standing Rock and Gaza and raise our fists in protest. We hurl our glasses into the fire of your arrogant unconcern and smash our bracelets on the rock of your implacable indifference. Lastly, Sorrow. What if it was your demolished home, Nick? Your invaded country? Your villages raised to the ground to build stadiums for the invaders to promote pop concerts on? Your uprooted olive trees? Your dead children? Seven million of your brothers and sisters living in refugee camps? Victims of ethnic cleansing? Would your sorrow trump your obsession with concerns about the censorship of your music? By the way, on one of the Israeli news sites, I was directed to a video of yours on YouTube. Towards the end, I picked up on the following lyric. Let us sit together in the dark until the moment comes. Nick, the moment came and went, brother. You just missed it. If at some point in the future you want to climb out of the dark, all you have to do is open your eyes. We, in BDS, will be here to welcome you into the light. <clears throat> so, in conclusion... I thought this was bloody clever. <laughs> I wrote this as a, I don't know, something or other. Anyway, it's for Nick Cave. It says to Nick Cave on here. <clears throat> and it's called The Road to Damascus. I went a bit biblical because, you know, people like that. Here we go. The Road to Damascus. So, hang on, have I got my prop? Yep. So... Me and this Aussie bloke, he's Australian, Nick Cave, right? Did I make that clear? Yeah, okay, okay. Me and this Aussie bloke are walking down the road on the way to a gig. Just as we get there, we see these heavily armed soldiers on the other side of the road knocking this Arab bloke to the ground, kneeling on him, 
kicking him in the head and beating him with their rifle buffs, butts. I cross over to remonstrate with them. The soldiers told me to fuck off or they'll arrest me. Are you all right? I asked the bloke. Daft question, really. Can I help? Yes, he says. You are musicians? Yes. Yes, I reply. They have stolen our land, he says. We are resisting them. There is a cultural boycott. Please don't do a gig here. As he is dragged away towards the paddy wagon, he tosses a small round metal badge in my direction. I return to the other side of the road where the Aussie has been watching events unfold. Did you see that? I say, yeah, bama, he replies. Come on, we've got a gig to do. No, I say, there's a cultural boycott. That Arab bloke is a victim and the soldiers are perpetrators. We have a moral duty to stand with the victim. Don't you try and bully me, you shameful, cowardly, pommy bastard, says the Aussie. I'd forgotten that, that's good. <clears throat> and pushes past me into the gig. I reach down into the dust and retrieve the BDS badge and pin it to my lapel. If I can. That's all she wrote. I will take questions, though, if anybody cares to ask me anything. Or, but it's getting a bit late, isn't it? Just a few questions. If that's okay, okay, great. Sure. Should I stay here? Yeah, stay there. Yeah, be great. Okay, thank you. Uh, just a question. You, know, you mentioned you have a stack of these letters regarding Palestine. You're active on a lot of issues. How does you know, celebrities respond to your outreach on other issues? Is it equally as hostile? No. No, yeah. No, it doesn't even come close. Yeah. This is by far, you know, the, the, this issue is the one that draws the most ire uh, from, from the great out-thereness out that is other people. Um, I was interested in Gideon's remarks, or maybe it was somebody else, about um, the meanings of words and the thing. Uh, it crossed my mind, listening to other speakers here, how important the definitions of words are, as it, as it does, obviously, talking to Madonna, um, because she obviously doesn't get what the words human or rights actually means. She, you know, she, it's beyond her. Um, uh, uh, but the other words, obviously, are uh, anti and Semite. Um, clearly, people don't get what those two words mean together. And even if they did, they've allowed the IHRA, whoever they may be, where did they come from? They're not an official. They're not the close descendants of Samuel Johnson. What the hell do they know about le lexicography or the meanings of words? We know what anti-Semite means, and it does not mean criticizing the state of Israel, you assholes. <laughs> speaking of speaking of range, what was the uh, apartheid? Apartheid. Apartheid, apartheid. We've been using the word 
about uh, Israel, most of us now, for 10 or 15 years. Before that, you couldn't. You'd have been lynched from the nearest um, tree. But, but now you can. No conversation about Israel now is possible without using the word apartheid. It's in every speech, every newspaper article. That there are, and quite rightly, because Israel is an apartheid country, not just the occupied territories, the whole shooting match. And when I say shooting match, I use the words advisedly. Sorry. Anything else? Yeah. I mean, I guess on that note, do you think these reports and the growing evidence of apartheid will force the hand of some of these people to fall on their sword and admit they were wrong? Which people? The people you correspond with. <laughs> oh, um, not not no. in, not in any great hurry. There won't be a great cure for them. Say, so, oh, if, can I borrow your Roman sword? <laughs> I'm feeling a bit guilty. That's not going to happen. Yeah. As as you know, Sutt pointed out, to cut through the Gordian knot is going to take a lot of effort and uh, and a lot of perseverance and persistence, um, but also a lot of hurt. And I have every hope. Um, a heart, sorry, I didn't mean hurt, a lot of heart. But I'm, I'm going to say one more thing, and that is this. Um, I was up in Canada a few years ago and doing a thing for a few thousand people in an old church, and I was talking to a lovely lady from Independent Jewish Voices and another lovely lady from some Muslim organization, and they were asking me questions. And we did quite a long interview, at the end of which they said to me, um, is there anything that gives you hope? And, uh, and I, I was sort of flummoxed, slightly flummoxed. And, and then I went, suddenly this image popped into my head. And I'm going to say, and it may sound incongruous, but it's not. Uh, a few years ago, I, I was with a friend of mine in New York. His name was Etienne Rodagil, and he wrote the libretto for an opera where I did the music about the French Revolution called Saïra. And we're walking down the street, and my friend Etienne was a very heavy smoker of cigarettes and a raging, well, he didn't rage much, but he was an alcoholic of some monumental proportions. So we stopped on 54th Street when we found a patch of sunlight and a little round table outside a calf. And he ordered a quadruple famous grouse and I ordered an espresso. And we sat in the sunshine chatting while he smoked four or five pencil and edges. You know what the French are like when they smoke cigarettes? It's all very, you know, <laughs> Jean-Paul Belmondo, you know, it's that look. And then... They stick it in there and they chalk and it wobbles up and down. You know what I mean? Anyway, so there we were. And I must have, I triggered something in him. I think we were talking and uh, I asked him what he felt about something or other. And he gave me a really philosophical answer, which I wrote down subsequently and kept in my back pocket. I wish I could pull it out now because it would be very dramatic. But the piece of paper is so old and has been folded and unfolded so many times that it's in a special drawer at home where I keep my precious things. Etienne died, you know, within minutes of that, of this encounter. This is what he said. He went, And he did a lot of that. You know the French. <laughs> he did a lot of that. <laughs> I was here. 
Did you get that? I said it in a weird French accent. I was here. I was here. Okay. He was Catalan, actually, not French, but I was here. And I went, okay. And he went, I felt something. Did you get that? I felt something. But, okay, I was here. I felt something. And, and, all right. Peut-être, perhaps, I was not alone. That gave me hope. Because when I stand in this room, I know I was here and I felt something. And I'm pretty sure I'm not alone. And that is what gives me hope. Can I go now? All right, thank you.